Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you that you're so invested in our journey. Thank you so much that you are invested in our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So uh, a few months ago, I'm sitting on the couch watching Property Brothers with my youngest daughter, uh, who is 10 years old now, Sophia, and we have exciting conversations that often take place while we're watching Property Brothers. Uh, So we're talking, we're reflecting on this wall coming down and that, what design do you like, but all that stuff is kind of happening, we're doing quite a bit of bonding, and then suddenly uh, Sophia says, Daddy, yeah, Sophia, I got a question. Oh, okay. What's what's your question? And uh, and I, I I perk up when she does does this kind of questioning because it's always something you know interesting and profound. And you know, as dad and parent, I kind of want to be you know profoundly wise in all of my responses. Um, you know, because one day she's going to quote me, and I want to sound awesome when she quotes me. So I know self-serving. So she says, <laughs> well, let me put the question. She puts. She asks me. She says, Why is Song of Solomon? in the Bible. I was like, smart lady. I, I, uh, fourth grade, eight, nine, and the ten years old. Songs, yes, song is solemn. Beautiful. Sophia, we're, well, at school, some of the kids, oh, some of the kids talking about songs. Yeah. Oh, okay, good song, song good, good, good thing. Uh, well, Sophia, I mean, the short answer is uh, because Song of Solomon shows us a really beautiful picture of what God wants between a man and his wife, and a wife and her husband. That's what a beautiful, wonderful picture. That's a good thing that's in Song of Solomon. And she kind of looks at me the way that only a young lady could look at you, like you must be out of your mind kind of look. And I reaffirmed to her, yeah, 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 this is, this is a good beautiful and wonderful thing. It's, on, it's in the Bible on purpose. So I, I look forward to many more conversations and any wisdoms that you fathers can give me and talking to my young girl about it. I'd, I'd welcome it and young ladies. But funny thing is that when we asked our congregation and those of you who are watching online right now a couple months ago, you know, what topics do you want to hear the answer to? I wonder what the Bible says about there was one that came, and this was the fourth most popular response uh, that we got. So, I, you know, my colleagues, we were, we were working out the s- summer preaching series, right? And this was the fourth most popular, and we were all looking when we might be gone and, and available. And, and they thought, you know, who better than Pastor Jose, three weeks before getting married, to talk about this topic? Here we go. I wonder what the Bible says about sex. Yes, thank you, friends and colleagues. I'm, ex- I'm excited to dive into this topic with you all this morning. I wonder what the Bible says about sex. Now, I'm going to do my bestest to keep this PG. And since we intentionally purposed all the youth to be here up front for Sabbath morning, I'm glad that you guys are paying attention. Because here's the thing you need to know. The Bible talks about sex. It really, really does, and it does it throughout the entire Scriptures, and it is a wonderful and beautiful thing. But before I get going, I kind of want to make a couple of qualifiers. Uh, One, let me tell you what the topic questions were that came in. Here's the first one. There was a lot that just simply read sex. There was one or two that read sex on Sabbath. There was a couple more that read, you know, what about sex before marriage? 
And then finally, this was a bit more explicit. It says boundaries and what is biblically okay between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. And I was working with young adults, I get that question all the time. Unfortunately, I get that question after some choices have been made and there's a lot of hurt. So I'm eager to provide you this morning with a little bit of context about what the Bible says. So here's my commitment to you this morning. We had a couple of other questions that had to do with homosexuality and same-sex marriage, and those are really appropriate and meaningful questions, but they by themselves didn't form enough cluster uh, to make it into our top five this summer. But it is really important and relevant for those of us involved in those conversations today. So I want to reference you to two resources to help you with that. The first is, a few years ago, Pastor Dwight did a series entitled Tattoos on the Heart. This three-part series, wonderful, super helpful, very practical as we intersect with the rest of society in working through those questions and how we can add, give people honor and dignity who are struggling through those questions. And secondly is the uh, seminary put out and a really amazing theological pastoral response to this question, and you can find that on their website. So I just, for those kinds of questions, want to point you there. I know they're important, which also says... I'm not trying to answer all of the questions, okay? There's too many. Part of my research, I ran into uh, Dr. Davidson's book, The Flame of Yahweh. You know how many pages that book was? 844 pages. We don't want to cover 844 pages worth of stuff today. And that was all biblical sexuality. Great, great book. He has some amazing articles, most of which I'll be, those are my guideposts for what I'll be presenting today. So I just want to let you know that. Most importantly, I am just trying to answer from the Bible. Every, every answer, every response to this question, what it, this is what it is. It's not what Pastor Jose believes. It's not what uh, the pastoral team believes. Uh, it's what the Bible says about sex. Are you ready? Are we good with those qualifiers? Okay, let's, let's dig right in because we have quite a bit to cover and we, we, we don't have that much time. So... Let's go to Genesis 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Put that on the screen for you. This is where the bulk of our principles, we're going to identify seven principles that talk directly about sex. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And it goes on to say over what? Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So principle number one, really simple. Sexuality is part of the creation order. Okay? In, the, in Genesis chapter 1, sexuality is addressed. Sex is addressed. It's right there at the very beginning. Now, a lot of people at this time, in Israel's time, ancient Near East religions, they had different ideas of sexuality. And, and, and here's what's really important about how this is couched in Genesis chapter 1. One, what's really clear in Genesis chapter 1 is that there's one transcendent being. Who's that being? God. He's the creator. He's, he's on top. He's, he's in charge. He's got the cosmic view of all of creation. That's, who, who, that's the, the main actor in Genesis chapter 1. What happens after, in the midst of this, is that sex is created as a part of that. Now, other religions were saying that in order for humans to achieve the same kind of transcendence, 
and to be in tap with, with uh, uh, their deistic qualities, to the, the divine qualities, they needed to achieve sex. They needed to have it. So you had all kinds of crazy, nasty, not really good, clean, healthy stuff happening relating to sex because they thought, well, we engage in this. There's a transcendent kind of quality here. We're tapping into the divine here. But no, 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 no. God says, no, not so. Genesis 1, we have to understand that sex has its proper place. There's, there's, there's a larger context beyond the actual act of intercourse, and it's, and it's really simple. We're going to unpack that context as we go through, but we just need to understand that sex isn't the pinnacle of the human experience. It forms a part of it. It's an important part of it. It's, it's, as we learn in the text, it's going to tell us it's a good part of it, but it isn't the ultimate. It isn't the all-defining thing that we need, uh, that some people would want us to believe. Uh, secondly, it was a duality from the beginning. That's the second principle. And basically what, it's, what that means is that sexual distinction is part of what it means to be human. In other words, male and female. That's what God intended, male and female. And furthermore, it tells us that God is, this is, this is the d- diversity that God had intended. He wasn't looking for the same. This was the, d- the extent of the diversity that he wanted was between male and female. Uh, third point, third principle is the equality of the sexes. Now, when we look at Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, we see that male and female are given equal standing before the rest of creation. And this is really critical. Uh, we go through this. There's no superiority or inferiority. There's, uh, they're both equally immediate. There isn't mention of one gender over the other. They're both introduced at the same time. They have the same powers of dominion. Both are charged to have dominion over uh, all the creatures, over all the gardening, over the be fruitful and multiply. And finally, they both share in the blessing and responsibility of procreation. So this is really good. There's equality in sexuality. Now, we're listening to some things here that are kind of important because they're informing the context where we're going to be talking about sex and how we need to understand it. Equality. In other words, there are some, <laughs> some ideas being espoused there that would like to shift how equality is shown in the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. And we've got to be honest, that's not what the Bible's teaching us here. Bible is affirming uh, equality uh, in standing between the man and the woman, and that's really important as, because there's, you know, that kind of helps us answer some questions about uh, some of the other kinds of sexual practices that are being really proliferated and uplifted outside in the world. And as Christians and as we study the Word of God, we really we need to be stewards of this stuff. We really need to be protecting who God is and His image and what He intends for us. Okay, fourth point wholeness. I know I'm running here, but this is all really good stuff. The image of God is captured in humankind, male and female. In other words, both parts, both parts represent who the image of God is. If we want to understand who God is, we got to understand both parts. So the journey of learning about somebody else who is like you but kind of different, has different parts than you do, you're going to learn something about God that you perhaps didn't know just because they're a part that also points to and directs us to and enlightens us as to who God is. All of this is building. Fifth point, and I think 
this is kind of where it really comes to head, uh, is point number five. This is relationship. Relationship. Mutual communion is a key component of sexuality, but also for our understanding of God. And this is how Dr. Davidson uh, says it in his book. And, and I love, I had to just quote him exactly. It says, It is hardly coincidental that only once in the creation account of Genesis does God speak of himself in the plural. The explanation that appears most consonant with both the immediate context and the analogy of Scripture identifies this usage as the plural of fullness. The let us as a plural of fullness supposes that there is within divine being the distinction of personalities and expresses an intra-divine deliberation among persons with the divine being. That he's quoting Dr. Hazel directly in that quote. And this is basically what this means. And the word we would use in Christianity today is he's talking about the Trinity aspect of God, right? We, we understand God as being, and we heard in the baptism, thank Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's significant that God, uh, when he's creating something that is supposed to express his image, that he would create something that has more than one part. And that we would understand that as being the whole, that that, that relationship component is integral. Now, what's really important, because there's another really prevalent thought that says that when I connect with somebody else and, and we're together and we're married, I now lose myself to this greater whole. But that's not really what the Holy Spirit and God is trying to tell us in the Scripture. He's saying, uh, each of you, distinctive part, you're individuals, <laughs> you're caring, you're loving, you're concerned with one another, there's conversation, there's dialogue that's happening. This two parts with the Holy, with God there. This is this is the whole of what a relationship ought to be and can be like. You don't you don't diminish yourself to become the whole. In fact, the whole is made better when 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 you are made distinct and your beauty is more pronounced because that's exactly how God works. That's how He is. In the function of the Trinity, I dare you to find one passage in Scripture where you see one person of the Godhead putting another Godhead member down. In fact, the exact opposite. Every God speaks about his son. He says, this is my son in who I'm proud of. That's what he says, right? And then Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, there's one that comes after me, and he's greater than I, and he's the comforter, and he will be with you always. Do you notice? They're lifting each other up. The fact that there's three of them doesn't mean they're less. In fact, it means that there's more to the whole. There's beauty to the whole. There's this whole relational context that that fits into that. And this is really important. Any sexual activity that diminishes somebody else is not what the Bible says is good sexual activity. Do you get what I'm saying? So my, how I behave as a, as, a, as a man and how I compose myself and the choices that I make in regards to my sexuality shouldn't diminish somebody else, shouldn't hurt somebody, shouldn't bring harm to somebody else. In fact, I'm not only concerned with how I'm feeling about it, but I take on responsibility to make sure that they are being lifted up, that they're being increased. Now, there's, what's really exciting is Genesis 2, which we're going to get to in a moment, helps us understand how we can do that really well. But the principle is, is that sexuality outlined here in Genesis 1 is pointing out it's relational. And it's relational where others are lifted up. 
And finally, uh, six point, six point is, uh, we can't forget this, procreation, okay? Now, when I, when I was reading this, I w- my mind was blown at the intentionality that God used when he was putting Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 together to make this point about procreation. We, we need to understand that procreation is a special added blessing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the procreation is what reflects the image of God. And here's, here's how we know that. In verse 22, guess who else is given the ability and the power to procreate? The birds and the fish. Are they reflecting the image of God? No. No, they're not. But they have this ability to procreate. So what, what does this tell us about the sexual relationship between people? Yes, procreation, wonderful, great thing. It does emulate who God is, and that's one of his things. But that's, that's not what's most critical. What's most critical for us to understand is that sexual distinction that we have is built for fellowship and for relationship. It's just saying it again. Guys, what's really important when it comes to this whole sex thing is relationship, is intimacy, it's connection, it's how you are built together, not something purely functional and not something that only, you know, that animals also do. There's, there's a stewardship of caring for one another that takes place in this relationship, which we can't forget. We have to guard and we have to hold on to. So let me just review six things, basically, that we just went through. Sex has its proper place. It's on purpose. God designed it. Um, It's meant to give dignity to other people. It's supposed to be beautiful. The picture that it paints is really beautiful, and it's relational. So what does the Bible say about sex? It says that for sex to be in the best place, we got to make sure that we're keeping all these principles moving, and, and then it will thrive. So I want to ask her the second question, which is, is uh, sex on Sabbath good? Yeah, I was one of, all right, I went through all that to try to make the point that sex is God's design, okay? Anybody want to disagree? I know, it was very compelling. And I also know that intuitively you don't want to disagree because you were designed to agree that sex is supposed to be, so is sex good on Sabbath? Let me answer this for you. Uh, Let me put this on the screen here. Wholeness and beauty. Okay, so in verses, Genesis 1, verse 3, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 14, at the end of those creation days, what does God say? It's good. Okay? What does he say at the end of day 6, after he's created sexuality? What does he say there? It was very good. Okay? One awkward moment, turn to your neighbor, okay, just turn, look, I can see you seeing each other, and say, God said sex is very good. Yeah, go ahead, come on, let's break the ice a little bit. God said sex is very good. Let's not be ashamed, this is a good thing. God is saying sex is very good. Be happy, enjoy it, delight in it, good stuff. God don't create junk, I'm telling you. God looked at this day, and it wasn't like any other day. He said this day was very good. So, young people, sex is really good. We should be excited about it. We should enjoy it. We should look forward to it. So, some, a couple years ago or a year ago, you guys remember those credit cards with the chips in them? Yeah? We started to have to use them. First time I went to the store, second, third, fourth, fifth, like, hundredth time I go to the store put that card in, 
And then, at the end of the transaction, it made this noise. <coughs> Have you heard that noise? <coughs> and I look at, and I'm, I look at the. Did it get declined? Was this? Did I? Do I need to pay cap? Do I need another cart? What's? And she's like, No, it's approved. And I'm like, That sound does not scream approval. That sounds like deny. That sounds like try again. It's just do not purchase. That's what that's. When we talk about sexuality with our young people, because there's a there, when you aren't talking to them about it, I'm telling you, the primary primary education our young people are getting about sexuality, and you know what? Let's be more generous to that. The primary education most of us are getting about sexuality comes from the media. Okay. Are the, the, the most amount of consumption on this topic happens from secular sources that have very different ideas about what the Scripture is saying. Okay? So it's really important that we paint a biblical picture of sexuality, and included in that biblical picture of sexuality is that it's a good thing. And it's not something to be afraid of. It's something to look forward to. God intended it for us to enjoy it to be good. Now, what happens in the next part of the sermon is we're going to go over a couple of key points because there's just too much to cover, but I've identified what I think are the two most relevant points for us to be able to understand as we communicate to our young people and, and reflect the answers to the questions or topics that were asked. And this is, this is really important. And, and it, what's really important, first of all, is that they understand it's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. And in fact, it's so beautiful and so precious that it takes... It takes intentionality on their part. If they want to just have sex, sure, that can happen. But if they want to have really good sex, they got to do it God's way. As Christians, we should be the ones that are saying, hey, guys, sex is good, is a good thing. If you do it the Bible way, it's an amazing thing. It's a great thing. But you got to do it the way that the Scripture says. If you want just, you know, like basic, not fun, just for a moment, kind of, you could do it another way. But do it God's way, it's, you will never forget it. So here's, here's just two little things. Hold on and we'll be, we'll be done here. Uh, let me say this about Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2. So that's where we're going to go. A little bit of context. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 paint two different pictures of God. They're not competing. They're complementary pictures of God, but they're important as we understand sexuality. Here, here we go. One, in Genesis 1, is we see this really transcendent, cosmic picture of God. And in Genesis 2, we see a much more intimate, connected picture of God. In, in, there's examples of this. For example, in Genesis 1, all of the creative work happens with, uh, with proclamation. God says, let there be. And what happens? It's created. It's right there and then. In Genesis 2, the creation that happens is all hands-on. Did you notice that? Genesis 1, he says it, and it is. In Genesis 2, he gets in the dirt, and he starts creating man. He breathes right into his face, right into his nostrils, creates life. And then he, when he takes Eve, and I love the word that he uses for when, he takes, when he's going to create Eve, he takes us from the side of Adam, he's, he creates, and it says architects, designs. Ladies, this is the biblical proof and evidence that you are a superior race. We came from dirt. God architected you. He designed you. It was it was good, and I agree with him. Way better than men. I'm telling you. All right, let there be and hands on. So you have this very cosmic God in Genesis 1, this very intimate God in Genesis 2, 
And here's, here's the third point is really important. Genesis 1, we, we see God as this creator. He's creating a whole lot of stuff. In Genesis 2, we see God being a covenant keeper. Covenant keeper. We don't even see the word covenant. Oh, yes, we do. We're going to get to that, and that's going to be the second point that's really uh, critical for us to be able to understand how do we have really great sex. I know, never thought I'd say those words in front of church, but here we go. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Oh, I skipped the slide. Let's go ahead and skip it. Let's just go to Genesis 2 and 20. Oh, no, I don't want to skip that slide. Just put, there we go. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. This is, this is important as we understand roles. Incomplete to complete. When we start Genesis 2, and where we end up in Genesis 2, there's two different points. Genesis 2 is just the beginning, at the very beginning, and at the very end, there's a completeness. And here's what it is. In verse 18, it says, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. Yeah, you remember that verse? It's right in there. Now, here's what's important. What's the signature of God's completed work during creation week? What does he say? It is good, or it is very good. So when he created man, and he, and he, and he created man first, and he said this, it is not good for, what is that telling us? That's cueing us in, that work is not done. That's, that's really important for us. Work is not done. He's still doing his creative work. Uh, second point, and this is, what he, this is the word that is used uh, most frequently in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. The Hebrew word for helper there is the word azer, which means we translate it in the English as literally helper. When I think of a helper and you think of helper, we might think of an assistant. You might think of someone in a subordinate role. We might think of uh, someone who serves our needs. But it's really interesting how this word is used throughout Scripture. And there's a few different places that we're going to look at. We're gonna, for the sake of time, we're going to look at two places that tell us, hey, this is, this is what I mean by helper. So the first one is Exodus chapter 18, verse 4. If you want to turn there. Exodus chapter 18, verse 4. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Who was his helper? God. Is, is God a subordinate creature? Is God less than? Does God, you know, do whatever I ask him to do? No, 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 no. God is, but he's being called the helper. Well, let, let's see if we can unpack this a little bit more. We'll skip right to Psalms chapter 33, verse 20. Psalms 33, verse 20. And I go to this passage, and I'm sure you have, when you're having a real journey with God, and you're trying to, you know, say, Lord, help me. It says, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Same word again. So taking those two texts, and we could look at a lot more, what can we understand about this word helper? Well, essentially, it's a beneficial relationship. In fact, when we are joined to this person, we are put in advantage. We are, we are, we are put in place of strength. We are lifted up and made better because of what's coming with this person. So every time that we call on God as our help, is it because he's doing what we've asked him to? Is it because he's serving in some kind of subordinate role? Nah. When God comes, when he joins us and he's our helper, we're... We're put in a place of advantage. We're put in a place of strength. And the same is said for your spouse. When they come into your life and God brings them, and, I, and I'm, 
and I really believe this is how God, when God brings that person into your life, they, they're there and they make you better. They make you stronger. They, 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 they aren't there to do what you ask and serve in some kind of subordinate role, but they are there to make you strong. It's for mutual benefit and, it's, and it lifts you up. Now, the next word is really important because it's one of my favorite words. It says konegdo, which essentially means uh, when it, we translate it as suitable in some translations, uh, the way that Dr. Leo Caesar taught me that word, he says, like his opposite, which almost sounds like doesn't make sense, but it's someone who is like you, but also different than you. Someone who, who is similar in a lot of different ways, but is also like opposite and, and different than you are. So I, I, I love and I celebrate uh, that Christine is like me. Uh, yeah, we have a lot of shared interests, similar kind of. I love that I, there are times when I don't understand her at all. And I may not in the moment celebrate it, but after the fact, I thank God for the mystery that she is. And I thank God for the, how she is different than I am. So, now what's really important about this connection is that, one, that's how God intended it. He wants someone like you, but also very different than you. And two, God knew that in order to sustain desire in a relationship, there's one critical component. It's not only what you know to be true, right? And what you know and you can count on and you can be familiar. We're going to talk about commitment in just a moment. But it's also about what you don't know. It's the mystery. It's the, it's, it's the discovery. It's that journey of seeking to understand someone. So God didn't want someone that was like you, like you. He wanted someone for you that was like you, but different. That piece of intimacy and mystery is important as we journey in life, trying to learn and grow and understand who the other person is. So that is really important. Genesis chapter 2, 24. First lesson that we learned, and this is a good boundary question, this is a good boundary question, is we want, we want, we want what God has designed for us. And he has desired for all of us to have companionship. And we got to trust him in that regard that he will, at the right time, notice, he built Adam first, then Eve. At the right time, he brings Eve into the picture. And it, it, this is a really good, like, practical lesson. The right time precedes the right person. You hear me? You want to talk about meeting the match of your life? It, it's not the person that comes first. It's the right time. God at the right time will bring. The person will not precede the time. The time comes first. Right time, then comes the right person. Okay. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. One of the questions that I get, believe it or not, all the time is, does the Bible really teach that we should wait till we get married to have sex? And that was one of the questions that came up. And I want to show you today that it does. In this passage and in other ways throughout the scripture, but we're just going to look right here in Genesis chapter 2, 24, and we're rushing through it. Here we go. Genesis 2, 24, and I'm going to read this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. First part of this equation is leave. You got to leave where you are to create space for intimacy with your partner. 
You have to have absolute, and this is what Dr. David says, you have to have absolute freedom from outside interferences. If you want to be in an intimate, special, marital relationship with someone, you, you are releasing yourself in a vulnerable state to them and they to you. So that's step one, leave. Second step, cleave. Leave and cleave. Different, depending on, King James is the one that uses cleave, and as a preacher, I love to have things that rhyme. So leave and cleave. Cleave, the word that is used here in the, in, in the Hebrew, is, is a technical term. It's a technical covenant term. In other words, what we see if you go to Song of Solomon's after we're done here and you go to chapter 4, there's an exchange of marital vows. If you go later on in Abraham and you talk about the journey, that, uh, the proposition that God made to Abraham and said, you know, let this, you know, when they had the animals and he cut them in half. This is a technical covenant term where God makes it really clear, this is how man's supposed to do. You're supposed to leave your family and be just with this person, cleave, which means you make a covenant, you make a commitment. This is it. This is all of it. This is who you are forever and ever and ever. This is who you're going to be with forever and ever and ever. After you leave, after you cleave, what happens? Finally, final part of that verse, one flesh. One flesh. Now, you follow this prescription right here, and I promise you, great sex will be with you for the rest of your life. Yeah, seriously. Young people, you, if you want to have amazing, the thing that God has designed for you to enjoy, old people too, the thing that God has designed for you, leave, cleave, then one flesh. Okay? Can we, let's, just, let's just repeat that out. Leave, cleave, and then one flesh. One, I know you could do better than that. I know you're really excited about this topic. So one more time. Leave, cleave, one flesh. That's the order. You do that, and I promise you, great sex for the rest of your life. Amazing. Wonderful. Don't do that with anybody else. Just the one person that God at the right time brings to you is going to be really good. So I didn't really get a chance to answer from Scripture, well, you know, what are the physical boundaries, you know, for boyfriend and girlfriend? So I'm going to leave you with this antidote. It's just, just consider this as Pastor Jose's sage wisdom. We don't start a car to leave it in the garage. You get what I'm saying? When you're thinking about your physical boundaries as boyfriend and girlfriend, don't start something you don't intend to finish. Okay? The model, the prescription that God has for us is leave, cleave, then one flesh. Don't take the car around the neighborhood. It's going to be really difficult once that car gets moving, once the activity starts happening, to pull it back. Because you weren't designed to pull it back. You were designed for one flesh. That's, you don't want to get in a position where you're fighting what God designed you to do. So just, it can wait. The equipment works. I promise you, you're going to enjoy it. Just hold off. All right? Leave, cleave, then one flesh. The car can stay in the garage. Nothing is going to go bad. It'll be okay. Just keep it chill. Debbie, did I get that? I think I covered that. Okay, good. So what should you do with your boyfriend and girlfriend? Leave the car in the garage. Don't turn it on. Okay, I think I made my point. Good.
Here's what I, here's what I want to do, and I, I'm going to steal a little bit more time for you, and I apologize, but I think it's really important because oftentimes when we have these conversations about sexuality and we have these conversations about marriage, we leave out a huge part of the population. Because what we say is marriage, right, paints this beautiful picture of who God is. And so married people get to paint this beautiful picture of who God is. So what happens to all the single people? Okay? And, and, and what demographics are showing us is that an increasing number of the population is single. So how is it that they can also demonstrate uh, the beauty of God and the image of God in a way that the married people do. And here's, here's what's the exciting part. And we're going to go right to Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. And we're going to read that right on the screen. Right here it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. As it relates to the covenantal relationship that God has with human beings, He functions as a single person right now. He's waiting. He's eagerly waiting for the right time to be reconnected with his bride, his people, the, 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 the species that he created and he has a special connection with. I want you to know that in the same way that God is exercising restraint right now from coming and rescuing it all because he's waiting for the right time so he can have the most number of people there, we can have the same promise as a single person. We can model that. We can model that to the rest of the world that we are going to wait for the right time for God's glory and honor. And that's, and that's really hard, but that's at a different point in our lives. Some of us are going to be called to that journey, moved to that journey, where we're going to have to make a decision. You know what, God, this is, I will do it this way. I will, I will wait for the right person uh, to be reunited with my Father and with uh, to be reunited, like God is going to be reunited with his people, for us to meet that person that God seeks to fulfill us with. Amen. All right, so thank you for bearing with me as I didn't get into the technicalities of sex, but hopefully we talked about the spiritual things from the Bible. And if you have a problem with what I said, uh, talk to Pastor Dwight. All right, so take out your Connect card, put your information on the front, especially email, and here are our four next steps. I would like to lead a grow group about being single, dating, or marriage. There's lots of experts here that can give us great wisdom. Uh, if you're one of those people, let us know. We would want to make sure we have plenty of grow groups relating with this topic. Fi secondly, I want information on joining a grow group on being single, dating, or marriage. We will send you a list just a list of those girl groups that fit that category. Uh, third, and this is something that we all can participate in, I commit to fostering biblical intimacy in my relationships with others. Those seven points, they apply. Those are great principles for achieving intimacy with people and giving respect and regard to other human beings. And finally, after witnessing four of these baptisms this morning, I want to give myself entirely to Jesus through the symbolism of baptism. If you've decided you want God first in your life, make that note here. Turn it into the offering plates. Our deacons are going to come through the aisles and make sure that we collect those from you.